My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? of an animal. Which animal appeared? Was it a sleek black crow? How about an elusive enigmatic octopus? Or a white bushy wolf? Crow, dog, human, wolf, octopus, bee, all mind, all one. Each an archetype, all carrying spirit song, playing their own part in our biorhythmic orchestra of isness, all dancing to the beat of our astral shadow dream side, the other side. Follow your wolf, wolf will lead you to yourself, where the sun is sinking, where the sun is sinking a golden sheen slanting through the foliage and the shallow waters of the creek, drained towards the sound, a solitary duck appearing round a bend, proceeds upstream, exploring the slack water along the bank. The sun is slowly sinking to melt again into all the other days that have ever been, and we are here watching these things that once upon a time happened forever. A reading from Out of Babylon by today's guest, Richard Grossinger, joining us here in the audio twilight of this astral spellcast. I'm Mystic Mark. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. We actually got, got rid of our house in Southwest Harbor, went back to Berkeley for a year and a half because our kids were in California too. And only bad things happen. And one of the bad things that happens was that literally got kicked out of our own press meaning I got kicked out, but then Lindy got kicked off the board too. And it was very violent. It wasn't violent physically, but that's only because they didn't have the power to order me executed. But if they had been the Red Guards or Khmer Rouge or, the, or like the Third Reich, right. they would have ordered me executed. That was the energy they put out. Like, you are this white guy who didn't deserve this press, and we're taking it away from you now because you owe us. I, I was pro-reparation at one point, but I now see what it is. It's not about reparation to the people who were screwed. 
It's a trick that people use. And the, the people who pulled that on me are more racist than I am when you really come down to it because there's an implicit racism in, and I'm not even talking about anti-white racism, I'm even talking about anti-black, anti-indigenous racism. It's, uh, it's a kind of weird vanity that, that enables you to say, I am, su I am superior because I, it's, I, the word for it is virtue signaling. A virtue signal. Our guest today, Richard Grossinger, received a PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan for an ethnography investigating relationships between economic and ecological aspects of fishing communities in eastern Maine. He conducted his fieldwork from Mount Desert Island in 1969 to 1970. He completed his degree, thesis defense, in 1975. In the years 1970 to 1972, he taught anthropology at two campuses, the University of Maine at Portland and Gorham State Teachers College. In 1971, he wrote a position paper for founding a Department of Anthropology Geography when the two schools merged as the University of Maine at Portland Gorham, now the University of Southern Maine. For five years, beginning in 1972, he taught interdisciplinary topics at Goddard College in Plainville, Vermont, including courses entitled Dreams, Ethnoastronomy, Freud, Reich, and Jung, Herman Melville, Charles Olson, and the Ethnography of Whaling, Physical Anthropology, Classical Greek, Creative Writing, 20th Century European and American Novels, and Alchemy, Astrology, and Totemism. In 1964, with his then-girlfriend Lindy, and the assistance of high school friend Charles Stein, Robert Kelly, and Nelson Richardson, he started I.O., a literary and esoteric journal. I.O. formed the basis of North Atlantic Books, which he and Lindy inaugurated in 1974 in Vermont. I.O. published 23 autonomous issues through 1976, before merging with North Atlantic and converting its collection to anthologies thereafter. We start this discussion talking about a synchronicity that led me to meet Richard Grossinger, virtually at least, but with the help of the 13th edition of I.O., which I found in a used bookstore. was like the the connection point i 
I will say something about that, where that fits in. Lindy and I, my wife and I, before we were married, were college students and started a journal together. And we didn't expect it to go beyond college. We were in college in Massachusetts, and then we went to Michigan for three years of graduate school, which fit the era, the 60s. I don't know if if I would have done something like that 20 years later, but that was the path then. And we continued to publish it. And at a certain point, we moved to Maine after that, and then later to Vermont. But when we're in Maine, the we had done a bunch of issues. We had done an alchemy issue, an issue on medieval botany and zoology, an issue on ethnoastronomy, we had done an ecology issue and a dreams issue. And then the whole earth catalog got into what we we're doing, picked it up and began to distribute it. And suddenly we began getting work from all over the country and all over the world, in fact, and not knowing quite what to do about it. I made an issue called regions and locales where I published the most interesting things that people had sent into the journal from different regions and divided it up by that. And it's the only time I ever did that with the journal. I think it was issue number 13. And the journal ran through 21 issues, or no, 23 issues. It ran into, it began in 1965 and it ran until 1976. And in that time, we did 23 issues. Hmm. And, and so that's what that issue represents. When we did that issue, we were living in Portland, Maine. I was teaching college there. The cover was done by a guy teaching at the art school in town. And it was only the second time we used like full color on a cover. So it was very exciting at that moment. And, and they're like seeds. You just cast them out there. I didn't even know you had a connection. You had more of a connection to inner traditions, except today I wrote them to tell them I was doing this, this podcast. And uh, Ashley, the publicist there said, um, oh, we, we know him. We have done a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff with him. Yeah. They're, they're so kind and generous. And I've been a, a, a big fan of all of their authors for a long time it's only been recently that i started the podcast and realized i could go and, and talk to brilliant folks like yourself but this is very interesting because i actually was in portland last summer i can't say that that's where i bought this book but i don't remember which used bookstore i found this but it struck me uh as interesting because I'd never seen a book that just started right from the inside oh, yeah. cover there. And I love that. I love finding, you know, just in unconventional things like that. And, that and I found the, the subject. That, Go that ahead. We didn't have a designer early on. So ah. <laughs> then our stuff to the printer. Oh, okay. The printer, the printer counted signatures. And if, if we went over, he printed on the inside front cover. Right. Right. That's what happened there was I miscounted. So, <laughs> well, uh, it's, it, it made for a unique, uh, yeah. unique thing. And, and yeah, it, you know, it struck me also because I'm sort of a, a book hoarder, book collector. So sometimes I'll buy a book, even if it's, if it's only the book cover that excites me. Turned out there's so many fascinating little 
gems in that book. Obviously, I didn't realize that it was a, a compilation of things people had sent you. But when I realized like, oh, okay, this is the guy who's kind of behind this and he's got an article here. And then I sort of did some gumshoe work and found uh, you on Inner Traditions. Dot com and yeah I'm I'm very excited to to have you here so we can get right into it I I bought your your biography out of Babylon so I know this is an autobiography of sorts and I'd be happy to maybe start as far back as you're willing to go and maybe give our listeners a little impression of who you are and and how this journey really started for you because I find that we might have a few things in common, our, our interest in anthropology, of course, and, and obviously synchronicity. And, and so for me, it's a true honor, and I'm ready to soak up whatever you have to offer. Remind me, where are you in Connecticut? Where are you located? Mm-hmm. I'm in Milford, Connecticut, so down by New Haven. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I think I just got that from the 203 area code, but that means nothing because cell phones uh, travel all over. True. Yeah. Interestingly, as synchronicities go, I, I do rewrite books after they're published, and it happens that the last three weeks and for another week or so, I'm rewriting out of Babylon. And so that was today's work. Wow. So okay. this is a book, but I'm also writing it. That's partly for a reason that's a little bit dark, which is that the book began really with my, it began with my brother's madness, my half-brother's madness. And so when he went in 1973, 72, 73, went into a mental hospital and asked me to write his story because he never thought he would get out. And in a certain sense, he never did because when he came out, he he was he was screwed up by the mental hospital in such a way that he never sort of returned to neutral. He he was a street person a lot of the time, although he still had an interesting set of adventures and ultimately committed suicide. And as did my mother and my sister before and after him. So out of Babylon was very much it started by writing his story. And, and it still is an esoteric book. It's not like it's, an, it's a biography or a memoir. I'm interested in uh, subtle energies and how they drive and affect things. And my brother himself was very caught up in the occult and magic. In his case, it became dangerous. It became, he tried to make it a stand-in for living. He wanted, he wanted all those images he was pulling out of alchemy and tarot to literally guide him through life and to make, make it work. And that pulled him out of his own sense. It, it can work that way. In fact, it does uh, sometimes work that way. The, the point of those things is to pull you into your center, not out of it. But so I began the book telling his story, and ultimately I I blended it with other stories from my family because it was very complicated. I was raised thinking my stepfather was my father until I was eight, and then I found out that this other guy was my father, and I had two other brothers, and and I, my name got changed when I was twelve, and then when I was thirty. I found out neither of them were my father. And that my mother had had me by an affair while she was married to the 
to the guy whose last name I now have, uh, but it wasn't the last name I was raised under. Well, all of these I began to weave around my brother's story. And then, and then in 2016, my was when my sister committed suicide and it was getting to be, it's, it's one thing to develop ways of processing it and assimilating it. And that's something I I've always tried to do the, the family complexities and the, and the, the dark visions. And it's not that I'm any different than all the people who committed suicide. I just have found a different way to use those energies. And so that's really what I, what I wrote that book about, but the version you have was published before my brother and sister committed suicide. And it just seemed ridiculous to not finish the book in a way I, I took it, I took it apart because some parts of it really belonged in another book. And I put it back together and carried it pretty much to the present. And that, that was too long. So I divided it into four books. <laughs> I just, in the last few days, given each one a name. And so I'll tell you what the names are because I'm sort of taken with them. Book one is called The Grimoire of Grossingers because that's that's my fam, my family name. And that's also was a resort hotel that was very famous for a period of time in the Catskills. And then book two, what did I name? What did I name book two? Oh, I named book two, the, the James brothers, because my brother used Jesse and Frankie James as code for talking about us and our relationship as outlaws. And, and that seemed to me a really central theme. And book book three, I called Ja because of the heavy reggae underlying part to the story and to my brother's life. He became very raspy, he grew dreadlocks. He, he, he sang reggae songs a lot. And it was a reggae song called Stepping Out of Babylon that gave me the title for that book. And it was a kind of amazing scene. It was in the 80s, I guess. And our our son was, let's see, so it's really like, it's about the 80s. Our son was a young man in his early 20s. And I, I took him and his then girlfriend, they were in college, to see my brother in New York, where he was a street person. He lived in Central Park a lot, but he also had an apartment that my stepfather paid for. And there's a whole meandering story about tracking him down, ending up in the apartment, which was pitch black because he had hammered boards and stuff over all the windows. And it was, and I could tell that our, our son was, Robin was okay with it. He had already seen my brother in action, but his girlfriend who was from mainland China, that she was pretty freaked out by it. So my brother, John, got up and he pulled all of the stuff off the window. So it came crashing down and all this light streamed into this apartment and he pointed and you could actually see the apartment buildings in which we had grown up. And he said, there it is, rich Babylon. He said, you flew out of Babylon like some sort of wind spirit, but I had to fight my way out of Babylon all the way. 
And um, that was how I named the book. I just today named the fourth volume. I named it Universal Forces of Light because I went through the darkest period of my life when I really sort of lived through each of their suicides at a really deep hell realm level, an, an abyss level. And in the course of that, a woman who I worked with as a healer put me in touch with a psychic in Southern California who did a meditation with me in trying to heal ancestral trauma. And it began with the phrase, universal forces of light. You called out to universal forces of light to, to let you forgive everyone and to let everyone forgive you, and then to forgive yourself, and to let everyone else forgive themselves. And then it goes um, totally and completely now and forever. And that's more like the chapter title. But I thought Universal Forces of Light, I was going to call it Hexes for a while, but I thought that was too negative. But that's one piece of the work that I, I do. I mean, I... I, I started off, you asked me for my story. I, I, so I grew up in New York City. Well, and let me just say, praise the way you, you brought us through that. I'm already certain this is going to be a great conversation, but I want to just highlight the fourth, the fourth book's title because those are words to, to really take in and, and sit with, you know, universal life, you know, Please save me. Repeat it for me. <laughs> Universal. I, I'd actually like to find the meditation. Mm, um, because that, that would be great. It's, it's a really good one. And it's, it, uh, I come back to it a lot. Mm. Yeah. And, and without so, going and digressing into personal circumstances, it, it's synchronistic on many different levels. And I think this, this prayer would, or meditation would yeah. be extremely healing for me and, and everyone tuning in. Yeah. The guy, the guy who um, gave it to me, he takes the name Steve Lumiere and it goes universal forces of light. Please help me to forgive everyone who has harmed me. Please help everyone I have harmed to forgive me. Please help everyone to forgive themselves. Please help me to forgive myself totally and completely now and forever. Excellent. And I think it's a great, it's just a great meditation. It covers a lot of grounds and it's not just words. It moves energy. Mm, agreed. And, and it's a great way to move into the energy of this conversation. I appreciate you taking us through that because it sounds like you've gone through some difficult, very difficult things in your life. And to be able to transmute them through this conversation and through your books, I'm sure is going to be very beneficial to anyone who can relate. And I don't doubt that there aren't, you know, anyone out there who can't relate. So anyways, let's start with, with New York because the Catskill mountains I've heard from past guests is sort of like a vortex in a way. It's got a very high vibrational resonance there in the Catskill mountains, even going back to the native Americans. Yeah. I, I felt that I've written about that in the book that after my family's hotel, was completely it, it went bankrupt and then it was destroyed and it became 
a site for photographers who wanted to photograph ruins. There's a whole a whole kind of cult of photographing ruins, mm. like Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch. They mm. sneak into that one. That's a really, really... A juicy target. I, I understand the appeal. There's a lot of urban decay here in Connecticut that I perused through as a teenager. Yeah, right. It's there is there is that that whole aspect to it. And I'm I'm interested in we could diverge it to Connecticut at a later point, hopefully. But the I mean I see a path to that, but I'll hold off on that. But I, so let's see, which... The which cat skills. Is, oh, right. Because of the, what, after, it was in the year 1999, our whole family went to visit the ruins. Mm. And what struck me was that the energy field was stronger than when the hotel was there. And that, the, and that when I was a child, and went there and thought, wow, this is just such an amazing place. I was actually not feeling feeling all of the highly commercialized energy that was what everybody thought was so wonderful. I was actually feeling the vortex that was there. And that when you removed the whole body of the place, the vortex was still there. And... I think that, too, I mean, it's one reason why we're living most of the time in Bar Harbor, because there's a vortex on Mount Desert Island. Mm. And I'm not the one who discovered it. I came here and found that not only kind of countercultural types who had moved here because of the vortex, but local fishermen are aware of it. And there's been a lot of UFO activity here in the past that, again, not, not the countercultural people who've moved here, but na Native people, people who've grown up here several generations, talk about the UFO activity. Mm. So you had, you had mentioned that one of the interesting things to talk about was New England. So oh, undoubtedly. England, <laughs> we could go on for that, people. yeah. Yeah. We spent 38 years in California. So I, I've been thinking a lot about the comparison. What was the energy field there in the Bay Area, which was a high energy place? I kind of bought into this idea that the, 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 two, the two continents grinding against each other to produce the fault line, that that sent a particular vibration out. But it wasn't, it's not a, it's not a grounding vibration. It's a very, it's a very high, I don't know how to describe it. Like it actually matches what's, what's come there, which is all of the, like, like Facebook and Google. It's a, it's a virtual vibration. And it seems to have taken form in creating the counterculture originally. It's like, this is just a myth I'm making up as I go along. But you have the continental plates grinding against each other, sending this energy up, which then gets converted through the counterculture and the music and everything else of the 60s and 70s. We went there in the mid-70s and stayed, you know, during the time our kids grew up. And but that energy, because energy never stays, it continued to convert and transform. And now what you have is the whole Silicon Valley. It's like a ghost energy. It's and it and it and I think of the counterculture as being very humanist, cosmic, but humanist. 
But what we have now, the kind of culture that's that's followed it, is transhumanist, mm. which I think is the most dangerous influence right now, the transhumanist uh, movements. Mm. I mean, we don't have any idea of how far it goes even. Right, right. This Ray Kurzweilian sort of put our minds <laughs> yeah. in the in the brain vat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, well, you see in, in bottoming out the universe, I did write about that. That was one of my topics was this desire to not just transcend mortality, but transcend being human as if that would be interesting. So like be in a, be on a hard drive. Right. Right. And you, you do mention in, in, on page 74, you say that, you're seeing the the brain really more as a transmitter for consciousness rather than the the play and not you yourself but science has begun to see brain the brain as a transmitter rather than the the you know origin of consciousness well i for me there was this long path i i got i got into writing books about consciousness I'd, I'd originally, the, when I began doing topic books, I first did medicine, mm-hmm. and then I did astronomy, cosmology, and then I did embryology and biology. Well, and then I took, and those were two books, one called Embryogenesis and one called Embryos, Galaxies, and Sentient Beings. And then I let that sequence go for almost 10 years. And when I came back to it, I realized, well, consciousness is the thing that's, that is, I mean, it's just such a riddle. And somebody gave me as I met a publisher from MIT who gave me an MIT press book on the nature of consciousness. And it was the first time I realized that neuroscientists haven't a clue as to what consciousness is. They know what consciousness does when it operates in the nervous system, but they don't know how you make it or where it comes from, or they don't even have the remotest clue where it is. And their their kind of placeholder for what it is, is that when you get enough neurons together and they begin feeding back into each other, somehow they become aware and that's consciousness. So you go from the worm to the, you know, to the crab, to the starfish, to the fish, to the amphibian, and, and you keep getting more and more neurons, and it keeps getting more and more complex until there's enough feedback to to turn it into consciousness. Mm. And I and the brain then becomes the the outcome of that. And one of the things that I did in that book, and bottoming out the universe, was to address the the brain as maybe not itself the ultimate object, uh, the generator of consciousness, but a sort of filter of consciousness. And and at the same time, the I was because I was studying the seven planes of consciousness with John Friedlander, a psychic who has a kind of Sethian view of the world. I I was thinking about consciousness as being a form that comes down from higher planes of consciousness, higher planes of being in a way, and then turns into consciousness on this plane in the brain, that the brain is in a way the grounding of these energies into a conscious form. And so in that sense, 
the con the, the actual signal that is conscious is is not is not the brain. The brain simply receives it, filters it, and channels it. And I I did three a three volume work called Dark Pool of Light, Reality and Consciousness that preceded bottoming out the universe. And I, I do want to tell that story because I recently removed my taboo on talking about it. So I will tell it in a second. But so what did I want to say there? Or do I just want to tell this, this story? Uh, oh, well, oh, I know what I want to say. So in Dark Pool of Light, we were, when I was writing it, we were at a party in Napa County. We we're still living in the Bay Area then. And, and there was a neuroscientist at the party. And my wife ended up talking to him and she said, oh, you should come over and talk to my husband. He's writing this book on consciousness. And so he came over and I asked him all my questions. And then I said something, and I wrote this at the preface to one of the volumes. Uh, the dialogue went something like, well, I said, well, you're not talking like somebody who's just a machine. Like you're describing consciousness as just this mechanism, this chemical thing, but you don't sound like it. And there's a difference between you, the person I'm talking to, and your neuroscience version of what consciousness is. And I said, so why is that? And it was like he had this startled look for a while, and then he thought about it, and he said, it's more fun this way. And I thought that that was much more profound than he realized because um, it covers so much ground. It's not just that it's more fun to not be a machine in some transhumanist world, but in some sense, there's a driver behind, behind our being. I mean, we want to be here. It's We're not like the cosmic accident, the the shuffling of the algorithm that just dumps us here. There, there, there is a driver behind it. The driver doesn't show up in Darwinian science, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it also doesn't mean that Darwinian science is wrong. It just means that Darwinian science is the Darwinian sciences is the way that driver gets expressed when you run it through a, a kind of dense field like this universe is, like this particular universe is a very dense universe. You take it out of a spirit realm and run it through a denser form. And so you get algorithms and you get the, this particular play out of it. And so, but I will, since I'm narrating here and you can interrupt me when you want, but I will tell you how, I got connected to inner traditions and bottoming out the universe. When, when, when I was trying to figure out how to earn a living, which was sort of through my 20s and 30s, I taught, the uh, main thing I did was I taught college for a while. I almost taught at a lot of more interesting schools, but didn't happen. In reality, I taught at the University of Maine in Portland for two years, and then at Goddard College in Vermont for five years. And... While we were there, Lindy was working for the Vermont Arts Council and got sent out to the Bay Area to go to a conference, a dance conference, dance critics conference. And she flew out with the kids and then I drove the car out. So, so we'd have a car. We did a lot of driving from between Vermont and California during those years 
if you count back and forth seven times, most of them with the kid with young kids. And what I found during that summer was all these things that I'd been looking for. I found like a street course on homeopathy and the teacher who had taught my tai, own Tai Chi teacher was teaching in a backyard there. And I found a Reikian guy to do bioenergetics with. And it was just like, wow, all this stuff. I even played pickup softball all summer in what seemed like the best league I'd ever played in. And it was a really spectacular summer. And I did not want to go back to Vermont and teach college, but I did. And then the college was the resident undergraduate program there went out of business very soon after, but they wanted faculty to go away for the winter so they wouldn't have to pay um, for the heating and the salaries. So we took the winter off and went back out there and we were there for nine months and then came back and found that the resident undergraduate program was folding after the year. So we turned around and went back there in 1977 with with a nine-year-old and a i guess nine-year-old is that right eight-year-old and five and, and three-year-old with no jobs and i had money from a publisher doubleday to write a book that became planet medicine which was a history of alternative and non-western medicine and it was something i had studied to do in graduate school and then never did. I wanted to do ethnomedicine and then never followed up on it. So I thought, well, I'll do that book for one year in the Bay Area, and then I'll find another college teaching job. But when we went out there, I didn't find another job in the year. And, and I got another advance to write another book, which gave us more money. And, and Lindy found a bunch of arts administration jobs and so I wrote a book for Sierra Club called The Night Sky, which eventually I rewrote it twice for other publishers. And ultimately, in the more, most recent edition, it's, it has the subtitle Soul and Cosmos. And it's about the many, many night skies that exist, not just the big one, but with the, all the cross-cultural night skies, science fiction night skies, shamanic night skies, and so forth. And that took three editions in, you know, 20, 30 years to actually pull off. So that kept us in the Bay Area. And then I got money from yet another publisher to write the first of the embryology books. And so we just kind of kept staying there. And while we were there, the small publishing company that we had brought out there began to take off. The 80s really changed publishing because the chain stores came into being. Nobody could have foreseen Amazon or the internet then, but the, the chain stores totally transformed everything because they didn't care what imprint was on a book. They just wanted cheap product in bulk. And we were publishing by then, and we'd started as a literary press, but by then we were publishing in areas that they really wanted, alternative medicine and martial arts, internal martial arts, because I had turned my Tai Chi class into publishing Tai Chi books, and then that led to Aikido and Capoeira and 
all, all these other martial arts and nobody else was doing it. Mm. So, and then I found other themes, for instance, we were the first people I'm going to shut off outlook. So it doesn't beep anymore. <laughs> That's all right. Um, the, I, like we published all the early books about the face on Mars and the, mm. Richard and the monuments of Mars. Yeah. I did want to ask you about that. Cause I listened, you know, I try to do some research and I listened to what seems like your most recent podcast appearance. And it seemed like you got ambushed over there by Richard Hoagland's uh, oh. crew member or something like that. And I felt really bad for you. I'm like, How, what kind of manners is this? And then they go to the members only section. So I couldn't even hear you defend yourself, well, but yeah, you know. well, Richard and I, had, you know, I was a great supporter of him and like his patron, we have a good relationship. I mean, I, I like Richard, but I also consider he, he and I consider his work very differently. Mm. I value stuff he he's done that he doesn't value particularly. And then I, I, I don't, I don't believe in his monuments of Mars as proof of a city on Mars. Hmm. It, it could be. Uh, I mean, I, I don't deny it. It's not going to be resolved in my lifetime or in his right. or in yours. Well, and you know, and we shouldn't get hung up on that. Cause I just, I did want to say, you know, I took your side while listening. Well, uh, but yeah, well, <laughs> I forget what happened in that one. I did a number of his on the, I did several of his shows, the other side of midnight mm. and I won't do it again because I don't like staying up that late. Right. That, um, that's a challenge for us East Coasters when they're out on the right, West yeah. Coast. I know how that could yeah. be. <laughs> well, yeah. you you mentioned two things that I find particularly interesting, which is alternative healing modalities, specifically using plant medicines and in conjunction with martial arts, because as a young man, I became very interested in martial arts. I was on my wrestling team in high school. I was uh, uh, practicing, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and kickboxing at a, a school nearby and I became an instructor with that school and for a while I was very hesitant when my friends were like hey come try smoking pot come try smoking pot and then I found out that Bruce Lee had integrated cannabis into his training regimen which gave me this thought well hey maybe it's not half bad and from there I've noticed of different relationship with cannabis that I've sort of garnered than the average person. You know, the average person might just, you know, smoke it on the weekends and feel a certain way. For me, cannabis became very spiritually centering. It became something that pushed my martial arts training and, and made me feel a deeper connection between my mind and my body. So yeah, it's definitely an interest of mine, but what initially got you in, interested in ethnobotany and, and martial art. Well, by the way, that's that book was Planet Medicine, not Plant Medicine, just the title. Right. But I was interested in ethnobotany. I, I actually took, in graduate school, I took one whole term of just botany and ethnobotany. It was like... The, an interest in in shamanism that I be, that began in college, which is why I switched to anthropology. I was an English major as a writer, and then switched to switched to anthropology because, again, there weren't you didn't look at the world that way in the '60s. You going to graduate school was like a simple simple 
way to just find something to do. You got a scholarship, you went. We we face the fact, it seems hard to believe, but you can rent an apartment and live together unless you can produce a marriage license then. And it seems so weird that that turned over that quickly. We lived together after in, in Colorado and in, in Aspen after junior year of college, because Lindy's from Denver. And we just had to lie about being married in order to rent a, a cabin there. And so one reason we got married was we didn't think we could live together. And we went to graduate school because we didn't have any money and we got to get a scholarship. And so I did anthropology and I wanted to do shamanism. And we actually spent a summer on, on the Hopi reservation, but it was over my head. It was over my head emotionally, linguistically, and intellectually. And it's, it's, it's a big thing to do. I think the old anthropologists just fell into it because it, it, you know, it was like a form of colonialism. And if you really approached it in, in the 60s from the standpoint of the counterculture, it didn't feel right. It, it, it didn't feel right going into these places and claiming to sew it all up as sociology. That wasn't, and there was no, there was pre-Castaneda, and so there was just no allowance for indigenous thought systems, and that was what interested me. So it's why I, I dropped it, because I got no support for it in the anthropology department, and I ended up, that's how I got connected to Maine, I ended up doing a study of fishermen in Maine, because it was convenience. I'd gotten money to do a study of folk medicine in Maine, but I, I couldn't work with those people in the anthropology department in Michigan. And the ecological anthropologists really supported what I was doing and said, go do a fishing study. So I did, and it made a lifelong connection to the Maine coast and to the fishermen here, but it wasn't my interest. So when I got a chance to do what I was interested in, I just wrote this proposal to Doubleday and they they, I, they said, yeah, you know, go ahead. And I, during the year that I, year and a half or so, I did a lot of library research on non-Western medicine. I studied homeopathy locally because I'd begun that, but I really didn't discover the full range of alternative medicines that I did later. And I had to rewrite the book many years later into, into several volumes just to cover all the healing systems that I had discovered. And I had my own specialty. As we stayed around in the Bay Area, I got involved in cranial sacral therapy, and I did a training in that for three years. And it was very much a personal turning point because it was the first much more than like you, you developed in martial arts. And I never really caught on with it. But when I did cranial sacral therapy, I could feel the energy field. And when I went back to doing Taoist martial arts after that, it was totally different because it was no longer just, it was no longer just movements. It was no longer uh, athletics or acrobatics. It was actually trying to feel the energy field because in order to do cranial sacral therapy, you have to, you have to, how to say it, you have to feel the fluid flow, the various fluid flows in the body and the fascial tensions and how they 
combine to form a kind of field that you palpate above and beyond any particular anatomy is important, but you're palpating the field as an, as a form of in, intelligent conversation. If you, you might have had cranial sacral therapy and know what that feels like, or any of the energy um, body works, the energy healing systems. I have had a, a Reiki session that was very life-changing a long time ago. Yeah, Reiki is, Reiki is doing it off the body. So then you're just working on the aura, but it's, it's just a light, it's an even lighter touch. So you could say that this is the time of night when you get all these spam calls. The Reiki is like doing cranial sacral therapy off the body and also using a channeled system to do it. Anyway, when during the years that I was doing that, and it was the period of time our kids grew up and left and went and did their own lives, it could be of interest that our son is uh, environmental biologist in Berkeley working with urban resilience under climate change. And, and our, our daughter, I can't, won't say anything about her. She's an artist. I just, I'll give her a name and people, if they want, can check her out online. She renamed herself in high school. She as Miranda July. So she's a movie director and novelist and performance artist and stuff. But those kids, raising them was a big part of our life. And we also, during 17 of the years, we ran the publishing company together after the kids grew up. It was a project we did together. And we built the press into, into a, we, after the kids grew up, we moved it out of the house. We hired people. It continued to grow and grow and grow from year to year. And we built a staff of about 20 and we were up to doing close to a hundred books a year. And it was very dominating. It was, there's nothing in this culture, there's nothing like business to, you know, wrap your head around like money. Suddenly all there's all this cash flow, millions of dollars a year are flowing through this. And even though you're not making that kind of money, it's, it's, it's a trip to be able to handle it and, and, do people's books. We, we incorporated it very early as a nonprofit, which um, turned out to be a horrendous mistake, but it was, it was a viable container for it for a long time because it kept us from having to be like completely entrepreneurs and think in turn, think in totally capitalist terms. We could fall back on the nonprofit language. And it also meant that we, did a lot of books that lost money because they were important books and it was an ethos and inner as we actually started i think a little before inner traditions which started in new york and then moved to vermont after we had left vermont and i always thought of them as a competitor it was an asymmetric competition because they were much bigger and had a lot more money they were more commercial and when we went after the same author with them, we usually lost, unless it was bodywork or martial arts, which were um, our strong territories. And our press was called North Atlantic Books because we had moved it from we moved it from Vermont to California, and we never renamed it. We just we kept the name because we didn't name it. We sort of named it regionally. 
but we really named it after a poem by the Black Mountain poet Ed Dorn called North Atlantic Turbine, A Theory of Truth. And that poem contained a lot of ideas in it that were seminal to the press. And I thought of the press as a mixture of like ancient wisdom and futurism, which made a lot of, it still makes a lot of sense, but it it was particularly kind of edgy and forward thinking in, in the 1970s when we started it. it. It's the idea that futurism and, and ancient wisdom would go together to produce a new form was was like the, the driving theme of it. And without going into all the all the details, obviously we published people like Richard Hoagland. We developed other authors, Paul Pitchford, Peter Levine were big authors of ours. Peter Levine did trauma work. Paul Pitchford wrote Healing with Whole Foods, and he was my Tai Chi teacher, which is how I got into doing that. And I marvel these days at my own naivete and and kind of, I don't know what you call it. It must be a combination of like naivete, Asperger's, ADD, or obsession or whatever, but it never occurred to me to kind of organize the the press. And people were warning me there's an awful lot of money to be running through there to have it be so free-floating. Staff came and went, and, and, and what drove it was really the authors and the books. And I thought of it not as a company, but as an energy field that things came into. But the trouble was, and, and nobody can tell you differently, that, that as you age from like 40 to 50 to 60 to 70, it changes. The, 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 your social situation changes, the, the circumstance you're in changes, and there also are all these young people coming along, these other generations with different attitudes about things. And we were operating in the Bay Area, which was a very, it was initially a great place to operate because it was a center of indie publishing. And so we grew the press there, but it was a difficult place to, to operate because it was so expensive and the payrolls were high and the rents were high. And I think after a while, we began to OD on it. And Lindy OD'd in 2010. She was like, that's it. I'm retiring. I don't want to do this anymore. And it was becoming stressful because as it got bigger, we had to hire more people to do it. And I made one of the great mistakes. Uh, I've learned from inner traditions what the great mistakes are in business because Ahud Sperling, the publisher there, is he's like a guru of, of, of publishing as well as of inner traditions themselves. And I see that he doesn't hire anybody who doesn't share the mission of the, they may not all share it at the same level, they don't, but there is a pulling together and a camaraderie and a spirit. And I never did that. Lindy and I never did it together and then I never did it. We hired kind of willy nilly and, and we had, we had, People who who didn't. Um, hi, Lindy. You need to feed the cat. <laughs> it's, uh, making. Oh, you already. Oh, yeah, it's okay. The anyway, we we ended up with a very chaotic situation 
that like our distributor went bankrupt and we had to deal with that and people people left and we had started a, a for-profit at that point to run alongside the nonprofit and then we donated the money to the nonprofit to keep it going and we created a rather complicated bunch of stuff and then we began hanging out in Maine a lot more. We began splitting the year between Maine and California, and we're very tired of the Bay Area. We're tired of living on the earthquake fault. We Fukushima then happened, and everybody's saying, don't eat the fish, which could be generally said now, but at that point it was like a, a big a big thing that, that people were focused on. And right. also, uh, the, it's it's the amount of crime in that area when you when you squeeze a gentrified intellectual like artistic zone between two big ghettos which is what you have there's a lot there's there's a, a certain fear component that as you get older kind of um grinds on you um, yeah. so we were like spending three months four months in maine we got an old farmhouse near where i did the anthropology field work so we would come and and it was beginning to feel that mount desert was more countercultural than berkeley even because people were gravitating here and there there were there was the vortex that i mean i published a book called the chakra system of mount desert island by a guy who later died on a vision quest among the mountains here. Wow. And it became a, it, it became a big part of our life. And there, there was a point getting to be 70 or so, which was in 2014, where the attitude was, well, when are you going to retire? What <laughs> um, uh, it sort of was like, you're not you're not kind of allowed to do this in this way anymore. But I didn't, it didn't seem to me that serious because I was guiding the whole thing. I, I was the one who had the connections and the books and and uh, the authors, and I felt like I was sort of the DJ and moving it all around. And it was kind of fun still, not as much fun as it was initially, but still fun. It bothered me that the staff was going through the motions that they that there wasn't real heart commitment there was there was sort of commitment to the new agey facade but not to transformation not to uh, one fired staff person said we changed from an initiatory press to a counter initiatory press and that pretty much described what was being driven by the by the staff was there was a hostility in a way towards the alternative medicine. I didn't, I didn't foresee that what was happening was really the beginning of a lot of cancel culture movements and that we were right in the eye of the storm, that we were a really juicy target for canceling mm. by, by people who had real hostility towards the combination of things that we were doing. And yet they were generating revenue. So it was it was a paradox and a contradiction. And what I what I did, well, I, I think of I, I think there I, I sent you, by the way, this more recent political book I've done, which addresses right. a lot of this called Return of the Tower of Babel. And I 
the election of Trump in 2016 revealed a lot. And one of the things it revealed was that a lot of the structure that we took for granted and thought was serious was just all bullshit. There were the laws holding things together were not really holding anything together. All it took was one big loud guy kicking, you know, kicking ass everywhere and everything fell apart. People just yielded to all that. And I'm not going to say yay or nay about it. I don't particularly like him at all as a human being, but the energy force that was going on was much larger and it was neither left wing nor right wing. It was both. It was happening on all fronts. And I tried turning the press over by putting somebody else in charge and making myself founding publisher instead of publisher. And then he, he bombed out of it. He, he wasn't, he, he, he just basically, he was a great guy, but once he actually had to run it, it didn't work out at all because he meant he had to manage both money and people. And and that brought out a whole different side of him. And, and he also rearranged the board to reflect social justice, which seemed right to me as a progress, as a progressive who grew up during the civil rights era, I thought, why not? And I had always bent over backwards to make the list as, as multicultural as I could, except that if you're publishing those topics, you're, you're generally not going to get, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of white people writing books, men and women, but still white people. But I thought we had a pretty diverse list for all that, especially a first nations list, but there post Trump there, there was, I, I don't want to go into too much detail on it, but basically, basically at some point people on the staff decided that they had to get rid of Lindy and me in order to politically liberate the press. And they created a cancel culture narrative that it was an exploitative press, that it was a white, it was a white privilege press. And I, I was going through, I, I went through a series, probably the central series of psycho-spiritual awakenings I had had in 2018, at which point I was like 74. And it was the first time I really confronted the abyss that my mother, brother, and sister had been through. And I mean, really confronted it, like walked it, walked each of their deaths. And I also confronted all the other like unresolved issues in my life. And I'd started doing a psychic study in 2008 at the Berkeley Psychic Institute and then continued with John Friedlander as a student who I, the, who I, John, who I mentioned earlier, and that put me in a Sethian tradition as well as a kind of theosophical tradition. And I've been training with John on and off since uh, 2009. And I recently actually with Inner Traditions published his book, Recentering Seth, which is one of the better publishing editing jobs I've done. But when when I, I've, I've recently done more writing about this, and in, in this Dream Times and Thought Forms book with Inner Traditions, which is coming out in July, I did write a bit about the abyss and how 
no practice helps in the abyss. The, when you walk the abyss, it has its own quality of darkness that you can't say, I'm going to do cranial sacral therapy, I'm going to do yoga, or I'm going to sit zazen or whatever. Yeah, people do work through the abyss doing those things, but ultimately that's not what does it. The, you, the, what does it is you, you have to go right through the heart of the shadow and experience it for what it is, and then it passes. And so that's what I was doing. I did it from June of 2018 until October of 2020. And while I was doing that, it was so dark that we, we actually got, got rid of our house in Southwest Harbor, went back to Berkeley for a year and a half, because our kids were in California too. And only bad things happen. And one of the bad things that happens was that literally got kicked out of our own press, meaning I got kicked out, but then Lindy got kicked off the board too. And it was very violent. It wasn't violent physically, but that's only because they didn't have the power to order me executed. But if they had been the Red Guards or Khmer Rouge, or the or like the Third Reich, right. they would have ordered me executed. That was the energy they put out. Wow. Like, you are this white guy who didn't deserve this press, and we're taking it away from you now because you owe us. I I was pro reparation at one point, but I now see what it is. Right. It's not about reparations of the people who were screwed. It's a trick that people use. And the the people who pulled that on me are more racist than I am when you really come down to it, because there's an implicit racism in, and I'm not even talking about anti-white racism, I'm even talking about anti-black, anti-indigenous racism. It's uh, it's a kind of weird vanity that that enables you to say, I am I am superior because I, it's, I the word for it is virtue signaling. They virtue signal, and there's there's nothing at the core. And if I had not been going walking the abyss then, and walking the abyss meant not sleeping, so I would go five six nights without sleeping. So I was in no shape to deal with it. And what had happened right at the time, this was a synchronicity, right when I was going through this psycho-spiritual set of events, I happened to visit Inner Traditions because I was in Vermont. And I had done this ceremony with a witch there and had gotten involved in a, in a, a series of, I don't, you know, I can't characterize it. It has no name. And this woman who went through part of it with me uh, called it uncategorizable. And I think that that's what it was. I, I don't know anybody else who did a psycho-spiritual trip in exactly the same way, but I was in Vermont and I just went down to visit inner traditions because I would known them in a sort of quasi-friendly way. And Ahud said, well, come by because, you know, my son is going to take over and his son was just graduating from NYU. 
And I'd love it if you'd help me train him because you're another, he said, you're, we're the last two great independent psycho-spiritual publishers of the 20th century. So I said, sure. I mean, that was an honor to be asked that. And I had a lunch with him and Mahar, his son. And he said, well, we should do a book of yours while, while we're at it. And that became Bottoming Out the Universe. I was writing notes about about consciousness and about things like why is there something rather than nothing and i was also part of a panel at mit about interstellar travel and i had these various notes and i should i gave them to him and he passed them on to the acquisitions people and they accepted it and i call i was calling the notes bottoming out the universe because i was thinking what are the big questions I mean, if you really were going to bottom this, this sucker out, what, what, what are the questions you'd ask? I mean, Stephen Hawking asked his questions and made his unified field theory. But what are the really big questions? Like, what is this? How do we get here? Who are we? What's the context for this reality we're in? And I was pretty um, blown away by how good the editors were at Inner Traditions because I write very long books. I mean, my embryo first embryology book is a thousand pages. But in fact, I handed into them about a 170-page book. And after I finished working with them, it was more like a 320-page book because they asked me to flesh everything out. And and so I did. And and when we're back out in Berkeley and this event happened. And I mean, I had to get an attorney and um, find out what, what to do. And he, he basically said, well, you know, you could go to court over this. The, the, this is illegal. They can't do it. But he said, in the shape you're in, I wouldn't advise it. So I didn't. And I, I went, I signed paperwork, which in theory, if you took it literally, would not allow me to be saying any of this, but, and which is why I haven't before, but I've concluded the paperwork is bogus. And, and uh, there are many reasons I believe that, but I, I think it, I, I don't think one should be shut up. So this is me not being shut up about it. And um, I'm honored. I'm honored that you would do that on this show, Richard, truly, because I'm, behind you 100%. I've seen what cancel culture really is about. I personally work for a comedian at the comedy store in Los Angeles. And as somebody who's not afraid to open his mind up to this broader picture of reality, he's faced a lot of flack from the same elements within that subculture of artistic expression. So your, your message is well received here. And yeah, I, I commend you for that because Unfortunately, we are in a time where this virtue signaling thing is is becoming weaponized. And, and yeah, I hadn't known all of it before you, you came here just now. And I'm really honored that you would share that with me because it's it's tremendously important, I think. And coming from someone like yourself who studies anthropology, studies culture, studies society, and, you know, through all of your research it feels like the through line is consciousness right so i think it's so appropriate that you would address this stuff in a cosmic interstellar way with this book bottoming out the universe i think it's it's brilliant and i'm 
excited to get into your most recent book that's coming out that seems to be addressing maybe the more political aspects of our our world today. What's the title of that book? The one that you, you mentioned? Not the inner traditions one, but the um, one that I can't figure out exactly what I'm going to do with. I've been speaking to been speaking to Skyhorse about it, but I don't know if they're going to publish it or not. Hmm. It's, I've, it's called Return of the Tower of Babel. It started off when I first worked for Inner Traditions, they were doing a book on, on uh, Trump and chaos magic. Right. By um, John Michael asked, Greer, right? Yeah. And they asked me if I'd work with that author a bit. And so I did. And I just thought I have a different take on this than him. So I started off writing a book about chaos magic. Well, I, let me just put in the step I skipped, which is when this happened, I called Ahud and told him what happened. And he was like, what the fuck? He said, I can't believe this. And he said he'd never done anything so impulsive before. He said, well, come over here and join us, join our team, and you can have your own imprint. And so I started Sacred Planet Books just on a dime. I began publishing authors and inner traditions, and I have just a wonderful group of authors in just two years, about 80 books that I brought in there, many of them like exiled North Atlantic authors. And, and then I've more like sort of pioneered a particular line of psychic witchcraft, dragons. There's a whole, there's a whole emergent young culture that I'm interested in that, that stretches out of the psycho psychic and mythological worlds. And I have some great, some just really great authors and I'll at some point give you, you know, names of ones as they come out that are, that are particularly interesting. Fantastic. Um, I, I got to say, you know, I'm really happy to learn this too, because inner traditions just happens to be, Someone like you mentioned, I work with, and, and I think podcasting in particular, podcasts like this one, can really help authors reach new audiences. And I, I hope that that happens more and more. And I hope that that's already been, you know, something that's helped you out. I know you haven't done a podcast this year yet, but after this, I, I can anticipate a couple of my audience members reaching out to you for their own podcast. Yeah, I did a bunch of them. I did maybe 20 when when... It, it came out when when the book came out i was when bottoming out came out i did the first few while still in the abyss so they're interesting for me to watch they're very strange hmm. now when it's you like talk about person. when when you talk about the abyss can you help me understand that a little more you know is this a is this a ritualized place is this somewhere where you know you're just in because of the circumstances of your life and what you were thinking about your emotions, where they were, or is this like a process that other people could maybe repeat and, and find positive result in their life? Well, I think it happens. It's like the shadow, right? The shadow happens. The, I think that what the abyss is most often called is depression, but I don't think that describes it. And it certainly doesn't in my in my case describe it. I when I went back out to the Bay Area, I did a lot of work with an old friend who I also have published now within her traditions, Matt McKay, who's the publisher of New Harbinger and a psychotherapist. 
and we did some past life regression stuff. And he said, he said, like, you're undergoing a psycho spiritual transformation. And that's what it felt like to me. But it, how I would describe it, and I've tried to add a couple of chapters in, in out of Babylon. It's like one day in June of 2018, it didn't feel right. The nothing felt felt like it fit where it was. And that meant everything, the houses on the block, the people, my wife of more than 50 years at that point seemed a stranger. But moods like that would pass. And I had I had ways we all develop, we all sort of learn who we, you know, the operating system for who we are, like what you do when it gets in trouble. So it was like, okay, I know the resets for this, but the resets didn't work. And I began to feel weirder and weirder. And I pretty early on, I, well, you know, actually before that, we had planned this trip to Eastern Europe. And so we just went and did it. And it was very hard to do in that state. And it happened that one of the places we went was the Auschwitz, which was very intense to, to see. And everything in Eastern Europe was intense. And then we came back and my, I, had my, I have my psychic connections. And one of them is an astrologer, Elias Lonsdale, who I've worked with since the 70s and published many books by him, including a recent one with Inner Traditions. And I said, I feel like a walk-in in my own body. And he said, no, the other guy was the walk-in. This is you. And I got the same thing when I did a bunch of shamanic journeys that I was told, no, you didn't fully incarnate before. This is who you are. And nothing was familiar. It's, it's a very strange feeling. You forget that familiarity is something that comes naturally. You, you recognize things, but nothing looked familiar. Everything looked like a past life. Like it was, it was like it shot way out and was very vague. And then, and then I stopped being able to sleep because if you don't know who or where you are, there's no way to go to sleep because you're in a walking trance. And that got scary. And so I got put on drugs, which is this, like psychiatric drugs, not what you ever want. I already knew from my brother and sister that they only made things worse, that they, I mean, big pharma and all of that. But... I, I didn't know what to do, so I went along with it and um, just thought, oh, well, I have some leeway here, so maybe it'll get me out of it. It just made it much worse because it, it it's those drugs, to me anyway, activate underlying neurotic and psychotic conditions. So stuff like, to me, I, I wasn't bipolar. I, I had visions and I also had apocalyptic fantasies and visions, and they were all interesting. In one of my books, I referred to Dion and the Belmonts singing uh, Teenager in Love, which was a song of my, my teenage years. One day I feel so happy, next day I feel so sad. 
And I wrote, that wasn't puppy love, that was the heart of creation. But when you take those drugs, it just turns into common bipolar disorder. They, they, they've, they've really got that addiction down. But those are some aspects of the, of the abyss. And you asked me about dream times and thought forms. It was an offshoot of the political book. I, I, wrote, I wrote the Trump part first, trying to write about Trump from the standpoint of chaos magic. And, and obviously, you know, there are other, other people who, have, who, who I, I referenced who, who have done that. I don't know why I have a mental block on, on his name, but what, what's his name? Lachman, who wrote... Gary Lachman? Yeah. Gary? Um, yeah, yeah, Gary Lachman, who wrote, um, who used to be, you know, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm, absolutely, yeah. He yeah. was in, the, in a band. Oh, what band? He was Blondie. in a, Blondie. Right. The tide is high, yeah, right. But yeah, I I corresponded with him a bit, and he sent me stuff. But then I went beyond that. I wrote about QAnon. I wrote a lot about QAnon as a millinery religion, using some of my now, anthropology background. I heard you use that phrase, and I was not able to find a definition for that. Millinery religion. Am I a misunderstanding? Oh, that cargo. It's also called cargo cults. Okay. Okay, that yeah. makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it's like it's like it's called cargo cults because the Pacific Islanders during right. World War II. Well, I'm familiar with that, and I'm sure most of the audiences. But when I looked up the word millinery, I found a definition meaning the person who makes hats or women who make oh. hats, and I was well, very it's confused. Sort of an, it's sort of the anthropology term for millinery okay. religion. When I there are a bunch of books on it. Religions of the oppressed is one of them, mm. and this it's, is a concept where a much more advanced culture comes in contact with yeah, a, we'll right. say, yeah. less advanced culture, and that less advanced culture sort of uh, superstitionizes what they yeah. don't understand yeah. in the... That's what you were talking when you said, you know, syn syntho mysticism kind of... Mm, uh, Synchromysticism? Yeah, synchromysticism and sigils and egregores. Mm. And it's a whole... I basically wrote a book about that, and then worked in the whole counter ca cancel culture thing, identity politics. Right. And, and then when that was all done and I wrote that book and I wrote a final chapter about the, I called it Sat Saturnalia, the March on the Capitol, because it, it happened according to this one website, QAnon related website, it was on exactly the day of the Saturnalia. Well, I've actually interviewed that gentleman. His name is Chris oh, yeah. Knowles. He's he's the Secret Sun blog. I find his work oh, right. absolutely fascinating. You probably would agree more often than you'd think. But yeah, Chris is a very brilliant guy. Yeah, I use that. I use that as a as a basis. And I extended and then more recently i added a whole chapter on ukraine so it's it's kind of a 500 and some odd page book at this point but dream times and thought forms was an offshoot of that because at one point ahud said make it it's too political for inner traditions now make it make it a psycho spiritual book like put it in a psycho spiritual shell of some sort but then when I did, the shell was much more interesting to them than the other stuff. So I pulled off the shell and made a separate book. 
And that book was, well, it has a subtitle of Cosmogenesis from the Big Bang to Octopus and Crow Intelligence to UFOs, which are some of the topics I cover. But I eventually worked around to something which I do in Bottoming Out, too, which is for lack, it's not the right way to say it, and it's almost embarrassing to say it this way, but a critique of Buddhism, which isn't really a critique of Buddhism. It's a critique of the sort of Buddhist, I don't know what you'd call it, the Buddhist overlay that's put on psycho-spiritual systems, whereby there's one path to enlightenment, and, and it's very rigorous, and it's based on the scriptures. I I think that the that Buddhism is the most sophisticated description of reality that we have. But I also think that the uh, American kind of commoditization of Buddhism, even in some of its most sophisticated, wonderful forms, is tremendously destructive because it 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 tells people that there is is a path that there's like a rule book for the universe, a rule book for enlightenment. And one of the things that I ran into in my sense of the abyss was that nothing worked except something really mysterious that was unknown. One of my North Atlantic authors, Sherry Mitchell, who's a Penobscot spiritual teacher, told me at one point, just ask, just keep asking. You don't know who you're asking. You don't know what you're asking for, but try ask as a form. And that was one of the many things that I used was, I don't know, I don't know at all, just ask. A ask openly, with an open heart, ask and, 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 and just take what, what comes. And so in the end of Dream Times and Thought Forms, I added a chapter on practices to show practices that I thought worked to some degree or another, and then practices that ultimately just led me, it's like if I didn't have those practices, I would have been lost, but I couldn't use them. I had to use my assimilation of them. So I couldn't like do rebirthing or continuum, things that I'd studied and learned and could do myself. And when I tried them, I mean, rebirthing is just conscious breathing in a way. When I when I did they, they just let they just led me deeper into the into the trap. But if I hadn't studied them over the years, in some ways I would have been no better off than my siblings, who essentially tried to go through the abyss completely blind. And 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 I think that that's in the bigger picture, that's how we end up with homeless people homeless on the street and stuff, is the abyss is not just my abyss. There's a huge abyss right here in the middle of this all. And everyone, we're all in the abyss. But we have, you know, we have mechanisms to stay out of the maw of it. But if you lose those mechanisms altogether, and it seems like my family, that was built into my family. I don't know where it came from or, or who did it. Like my brother and I used to talk about it when we became adults. Like, what the fuck happened to us? Who did this? Like we decided that our mother was like this, this dark, 
bear shaman of some sort who who was set to kill us, like she was going to hit us with her voodoo stick and kill us. And we both came to that conclusion independently. And it really, it was very powerful. I mean, we're in our 20s and adults for the first time. And we like go from hitting each other fungos on the ball field and listening to our old 45 records to talking about what did we come from? What did they do to us? And I think it's generic at this point. I think my brother was one of the first people to live on the street, but he hardly was the only one. And and it's it's like we're all in this it's in this moment of transformation, and we each have, it it puts its signature on each of us in its own particular way. And I just think that that I have one of the more kind of I don't know I don't know what you'd call it. It's it's an opening, and it's also a, a terror. It's like it's like. The darkness is very close, but the opening is also very close, and they're the same thing, which in bottoming out the universe, the way I say it is that the terror in the universe is its depth, that if, if the universe didn't have the darkness and the terror and the shadow, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have any depth. It would, it would simply thin out, and that we have to work our, our, our way through that, Right after Ehud hired me to work at Inner Traditions, the very first author who approached me on her own was Laura Aversano, who's, among other things, uh, a demonologist and exorcist in the Bronx, of all places, with heavy Catholic training. And she's also a medical intuitive. And she saw me in a tarot reading and coffee and coffee ground thing, I guess steam from coffee grounds. And she got in touch with me through messaging on Facebook. And I was kind of blown away by her, her what she was putting on Facebook. And I wrote her wondering if I could do a psychic session with her. And she just said, like, we have other things to do. And she began sending me energy from the Bronx, and I was in Berkeley then, and it was palpable. She was sending, and, and then what I did for her was I was bringing her books into print, the ones that had gone out of print and new books. And she has two books within her traditions now, but that was, she's a real guide through the darkness. Her first book I did within her traditions was Affirmations of Light, in a time of darkness, I think is roughly what it was called. And that that's that's I think really the the most powerful thing about this moment is the mixture of light and darkness and the possibility of moving through it. But I want to do I, I keep this thing in my mind like like a post-it I put on it. Do the Connecticut thing. I was gonna bring you back to that and I do just wanna say my microphone was muted and when you spoke of this powerful woman, hand to God, there was a loud thunderbolt. We haven't heard a thunderbolt that loud since we've moved into this place. So something there's some magic in the air tonight, Richard. And I think it's a perfect time to take the conversation maybe a little to to a regional sort of lens because we do have that in common and i've been studying connecticut in particular just because i live here and i find the the history of this place fascinating going back you know pre-colony up until you know just a couple 
you know, decades ago. It's it's fascinating for me. But where would you like to start with Connecticut, Richard? Well, well I could start at a number of places, but I have a particular, uh, I have an agenda here, which is, um, do you know Ed Mondazzi? And he's in Windsor. Huh. That name sounds familiar. No, I'm not familiar with him. Well, Ed, Ed's a, like a larger than life figure. He, what used to be a book and crystal warehouse, I now call Newman Dazi city. It's out by the Hartford airport. And, and it's, yes, all sorts of people in there. It's, it's almost like, like a psychic Coney Island or something. There are people reading cards, people doing psychic work. And of course there are the crystals and the beads and back back around 2000, a friend in Maine put me in touch with Ed, and Ed began buying all of our over our overstock and shop worn books, and so I became quite friendly with him, and we used to stay with him, and it was a part of Connecticut and also a part of the of life that I'd never really engaged. Very, very kind of working class occult people who were deep into like crystals and and cards and psychic work and witchcraft, but also were very, I'm using the phrase working class. It's, I mean, Ed is like this generous guy. He employs like through the state of Connecticut Down syndrome kids who come in and then sort the books. And there's a whole uh, kind of mythology growing out of his um, warehouse, and it's it's fun to go to, and you're not that far away. I mean, it's it's. I'm on shocked. Hidden. I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, I spent a lot of time actually as a delivery guy up in that area too when I was delivering packages in a past life. But yeah, wow, I definitely have to make a visit. Yeah, it's not that far off of the the highway. You, you know, you go through Hartford, and then yeah. it's it's Hayden Station Road, I guess it's called. And you you it's it's interesting, but anyway, Ed and I, Ed and I have made friends, and the whole thing that happened with North Atlantic left him in a really awkward position because he was warehousing our archive. He was warehousing my own overstock. I'm still trying to remove some of the books there. He was keeping there from me. My, there were an extra thousand copies of my embryology book, the big hardcover that he's been giving away for free whenever we can get people to go. And yeah, if you go by there, just ask him for what's yeah. left of my, my books. I would happily but fill up my trunk. Anyway, here's what I want to say about Connecticut now is that Ed's would send me manuscripts of people, and most of them were not publishable. But he did send me a book that I immediately misplaced by a young woman living in the Hartford scene who had really been through some tough shit. She'd been in the Hartford rock scene. She'd been married. She had three kids pretty quickly. Her parents had been never never met each other before their wedding night. They were married by Sun Myung Moon when he married a hundred people one day, you know, just followers. So it was a rocky household. And basically she wrote a short book talking about her experience with that, whose name I can't remember embarrassingly enough, the name of the book. But she had sent it to me and I thought, well, this is this is nothing that inner traditions would ever publish, but this really 
interesting book. And I, so I told Ed, you know, let's see what we can think up. And then it turned out she had another book. And I'd like to see if I can grab a copy of that quickly. Um, yeah, it's called Journey of a Fallen Angel. And basically, again, it's it's not something that that could be published by inner traditions. It's it's a great kind of original pop book by somebody totally like Hartford Underground. And so and she, and she was being charged like twenty dollars a copy to run it at something called Book Baby. And so Lindy and I just made a trade. I mean, we we paid to have a, a print run done of 200 copies and inner traditions volunteered to run it through their system so that we could get it for $6 a book instead of $20 a book. And I, and then she joined the psychic group, which I I've been doing on zoom. And so I just think that this is, this is my interesting Connecticut occult is Olivia Ballinger is her name. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't I wish realized. I could remember the name of her other book because it's sort of it's it's a it's an indictment in some ways of the Hartford underground scene. Hmm. Um, what happens if you're a teenage girl and you walk into that blind? What happens to you? It's pretty scary. What happened? And, and her survival is interesting. And yeah. she's somebody who admitted right away in the psychic group that she had tried several times to commit suicide and that her awakening was it, her awakening. I mean, that's another version of the abyss. Hmm. Her awakening was really, really strong in, in that, in that, in that kind of crucible. And I recently signed another inner traditions author who was born in Kiev and lives in Virginia now and is doing a book on essentially transforming your DNA. And she worked for pharmaceutical companies for seven years. And she also went through a very dark period. And and her book came in on the through I have I have a separate Sacred Planet books uh, inbox at Inner Traditions. So I read manuscripts uh, and proposals and that's how I found I found her book. And wonderful, very interesting. That's, you know, a year and a half or so away. But there are other authors who I'll put you on to. Please, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and my girlfriend actually has some experience with the Connecticut rock scene, not the Hartford scene. So she might she might take take some interest in, in making a connection with Olivia, that would be really interesting. Yeah, I'll to, send you. I'll send you. I have your email, so I'll send you some stuff. Yeah. Well. And so what else? Given the time we have, what are the yeah. things? All the different things. So we yeah, we yeah. we we've gone through so much, Richard. I appreciate you sharing your stories here with us today, and you know, sharing a part of yourself. There are a couple things that I do want to get into, saving the fact that we only have so much time. Maybe we'll go right to what I think is the most interesting. You write about the trickster in bottoming out the universe around, I don't know what chapter, I can't remember, forgive me. But I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on this concept of the trickster entity, given your interest in shamanism and whatnot? I've heard other people 
uh, talk about Gregory, Gregory Little, actually. His book just came out, Origin of the Gods with Andrew Collins. He was talking about the trickster entity as this sort of all-encompassing being that's always sort of testing us, right? Pushing us to our boundaries. Is this similar to your understanding or do you have a different take on that? Well, the same, partly the same. It's something that began interesting me in college when I began, when I read one of the books I read senior year was The Trickster Myth of the Winnebago Indians by Paul Radin, who was an early anthropologist. And at that point, I was just interested in the trickster as like an, a kind of animal changeling who played pranks and tricks. And then my brother got very involved in the trickster and it became a part of his personality. And I, in, I'm trying to think in bottoming out the universe, I was mainly interested, I think, in the, in, it's, it's hard because it's a very subtle quality. It's something that Jeff Kripal talks about a lot, which is that the magic in the universe in our domain is liberated kind of counterintuitively so that, so that you have people who start off doing stage magic, for instance, and then it turns real. So the universe plays this kind of trickster role, which First Nations people were aware of, that in their own vision questing, that they would go after one thing, but the universe would turn it around and uh, on them, and that this became embodied in certain animals, like the like the crow and the and the and the coyote. Oh, and that was another thing was that. As, as children, one of my favorite books was Nine Tales of Coyote, and it was tried Coyote as a trickster. And many of the stories in that children's book have stayed with me, and I've used them in my, in my subsequent writing. And then another version I ran into when I was doing the um, Return of the Tower of Babel book was the... Uh, it struck me this very strange kind of the, the sort of, I mean, you hear about bikers for Trump, but what how about Iowa scarrows and astrologers for Trump? There is this whole kind of underground movement that has declared him a Hayoka shaman or trickster shaman. And Laura, Laura Matsui is the, is the woman I ran into online who most articulated that. She said about, about the pandemic that it was like an ayahuasca ceremony with no shaman. And uh, she said the shaman brings containment, and there's obviously none of that going on here. And I was astonished by her adulation of Trump and the transformation of him into a kind of trickster god. And I don't know, I mean, it's part of the QAnon mythology. It's, it's part of, it has a cargo cult quality to it. And I'm not, uh, my own personal feelings aside, as, as a trickster myth, I don't put that aside because there is a very trickster-like quality to him. I mean, the, the, a lot of the native groups who talked about the trickster were not happy with the trickster's behavior. 
And, and also one of my authors at both North Atlantic and Inner Traditions, uh, you may know Paul Levy, who writes about Wetiko, as he likes to call it, or Wetiko, Wetiko. Right. And the, the various animal shapes that Wetiko take are, are, like, are like negative tricksters. Mm. They're, they, they're like hungry ghosts that come and devour people's minds and take them over. And, and Paul uses it as a kind of a signature of what's happened to the world with the destruction of the destruction of the environments, the, the spread of a kind of sociopathic mentality. And, and so, uh, you know, that all these things fall into the broader reach of the trickster. Yeah. Whether uh, knowingly or not, he certainly has that quality of, of, frustrating and at sometimes you know providing gnosis you know a lot of people woke up as you said earlier whether it was through him or through the the whole pandemic they woke up to the fact that the structure of our reality is not what we're told it is at least you know and and when i see the the term transformational theater it makes me think of you know, the mass media and its effect on the general population and and what they're trying to you know, incur with this sort of theater of the mind that they present to us? What kind of transformation are they trying to inspire? Yeah, if they even know. Right. Uh, in the psychic group, I've got a wonderful guy who's an IT person at College of the Atlantic. He's one of the local members. And he said something the other day, which I've written down. I'm, I'm eventually going to do a s- sequel to Bottoming Out and Dream Times and Thought Forms. And I put it in that. But he, rem- I mean, I knew this, but he put it in a particular way that not only is the earth circling the sun and, and our solar system is moving in the galaxy, but the galaxy is moving. And then the galaxy is part of this, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's something like Lanteca super galaxy, which is all these galaxies together and it's moving. And Sean, Sean Murphy, who's the guy in the psychic group, who's been studying with Cindy Dale online, remarked that he's been doing psychic work with a woman, I think in the Philippines, and they've been speaking to somebody who presents himself as an Arcturian, and whatever that comes down to mean. But that the issue that's been raised is that the Earth is now moved into a totally different range of space, but not within this not within the solar system but the solar system and the galaxy and the super galaxy have moved to a higher frequency and that this is really hard for a lot of people to handle and so the old conservative forces are digging in deep because um, this is really uncomfortable it's not like um, anything that they can frame in political or psychological or other terms. This is the reality changing from the outside in and the inside out simultaneously. So again, it's like what I thought of as the abyss. Like one element of the abyss for me was when I walked down the street and I said this to Lindy, the houses would scare me. And I didn't know what that meant. Each house was so scary because each house was so dense with energy because there were so there were people in it and there were their own strange intimate energies 
And it took me a while to realize that my own frequency had shifted so that as I walked down the street, I was reading the houses. And that was true in, in Portland, Maine. And then it was true when we went to Vancouver, BC, and it was true back in Berkeley. And when I suddenly realized that, it was like I was pathologizing. I was thinking this is this is like a state of anxiety or depression when it was actually a switch in frequency. And that's what I think in terms of my own, the, you know, entering the abyss. I think I was ready. I, I'd sort of prepared over my whole life to do a switch in frequency because the frequency I was doing was limited. And it wasn't, and, and I always was going to be scared uh, doing, doing it at that frequency. Matt, Matt McKay, who I mentioned before, who, who recently, his most recent book with Inner Traditions is Love in a Time of Impermanence. But we also did the luminous landscape of the afterlife with him. But he said that for many years, he had this nightmare of this closet, which he wouldn't open. And then he opened it finally in a dream and the skeleton came out and it was like the scariest imaginable thing. But once he opened the closet, the nightmare never came back, which is kind of Freudian in its way. But it's, I think that this happens on such a bigger level. And I think the planet is going through a form of that now whereby everybody's being asked to look, look at things more closely. And science has kind of ground everything down to basically forms of algorithms. I mean, that's why I have that chapter in Bottoming Out the Universe called Worshipping the Algorithm. It's like we've gotten it to the point where nothing, nothing is worth believing in because anything can be generated by an algorithm or by a deep fake. Or, and, and this idea, this, in my opinion, an insidious idea of simulated reality is yeah. creeping into the consciousness of the younger generations to the point where they think, well, if I'm just in a computer simulation, well, what's my life worth? I'll just have another, you know, I'll just get re-uploaded into another video game, so to speak. Right. So, and, and that's a certain amount what's behind the shootings I mean, I touch on that in Bottoming Out the Universe, where I write a bit about former school shootings and this idea that you can, like, you know, shoot up a place like it's a video game and then just escape by killing you, by by dying, by killing yourself. It's sort of like, what is this that, that you think that you can turn off the game, you can unplug the game? And I certainly thought of I thought about this first in my, my brother's death. My mother and sister both jumped out the same window 41 years apart. But my brother stabbed himself to death with a knife. And that's pretty hard to do. And I was thinking, what, what was going through his mind? What was he trying to do with that knife? And it's, it's not that far removed from these shooters who have become totally, I mean, it's like the sociopathic syndrome is completely taken over. They're not even shooting human beings. They're just shooting, like, they're shooting targets. It's, it's completely 
gone over the synthetic reality has gone into has gone through their their minds and also i read an article that i thought touched on something very relevant to that which is these people before the people who commit these acts hit a point in their personality where they don't exist at all and that's so terrifying that they have to do something in order to exist and it doesn't matter if they're going to die doing it it doesn't matter because they're they've they've entered a sociopathic phase if they kill a whole bunch of other people you know it's like pilots who crash their planes they're saying this chinese pilot did this it's like well why would you have to kill like 100 other people or 20 other people to kill yourself to have one moment of like fiery identity when you exist again for a second but given given the setup and what people are fed and the options and also what i what i call gunners which is you know it's like i say france has existentialism you establish you know you you establish being and nothingness through existentialism that's uh, in america we have gunism to do that it's the gun that 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 stands between the person and the void and and the void is the void is unendurable and so and i can say that also from the abyss that i went through that there's no you just don't want to be there any second more anything you could do to get out of it yeah it's just how 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 do you escape it and that's why i think the practices help even when they don't because you've assimilated them so you you don't go off you don't go off the rails entirely and that's what i wrote about in dream times and thought forms a bit right the, those are two of my favorite words just parenthetically dream times because i think that the australian aborigine dream time has a has a generic form that can be applied to a lot of events in a lot of cultures that that w- the dream time is how we're created out of the land and then thought forms are what i think this is that's a big question but when it comes down to it what is this reality i think it's a thought form it's a collective thought form and that the reason it has leaks like ufo's and and spirits voices from the afterlife and synchronicities is because it's constantly being regenerated by thought by our collective thoughts and you know i said in at the very beginning of bottoming out the universe that that we already know just basically that this reality is is it's made out of nothing at the basis of it is energy and curvature there isn't anything solid it much more resembles what a dream would look like if you put a microscope on it than it resembles what what you know matter of the 18th century would have looked like there's nothing there's nothing solid there so it is kind of like a dream time and it and the this world we're in is sort of is sort of like the collective thought form that we've generated and it's really interesting matt and i have had this discussion because it related to the buddhist thing and i know we're on the tip of time here but he a new harbinger bought non-duality press and then it didn't work out a, a more complicated story but matt was saying 
he really had to think non-dual, think through non-duality, and he was thinking, well, wait a second, this the this all has to be accounted for. This stuff, all this stuff that's here, it's not a mistake. It's not a wrong turn. It's not just to be transcended. Every little bit of it, all the all the kind of garbage and the cliches and the junk coming out of factories and the things that assholes do and this and that, it all is part, it's all being generated. And you can't just say transcend it because it's it's being generated from the source and it's saying something about what the source is and and we have this absurd conceit that's also true that the whole thing came out of a little tiny thing smaller than a pinhead and now it's like trillions of galaxies well how does something like that happen it's so you know, it's a thought form. It's it's a thought form ricocheting like in a holograph or something like that. Right. Right. And I think that's why, you know, you so brilliantly address this question, the cosmogenesis of the mind. It's not the, the universe itself. It's the mind that I think preempts it. But so many profound things have been said today, Richard. I really appreciate you sharing your time with us and I, I mean, there's a lot we could talk about. I don't know how much extra time well, you'll give yes, me, but <laughs> I feel I feel impolite to have talked so much, except no. that I get away with it because I'm the subject of the show and I'm yeah. supposed to. Yeah, that's that's what you're here for. Not let you talk more. <laughs> well, no, no, that's what you're here for. And if you'd like to get to know me, I'd be, you know, equally yeah. able to do that. But the audience, they know enough about me. We're here to listen to, to your story and, and sharing your wisdom. But yeah, I mean, you've kind of given us a couple books to, to go and, and seek out. Bottoming Out the Universe is already out. Dream Times and Thought Forms will be out this year, correct? Yeah, in July. Okay. And all of those older books like Planet Medicine and Night Sky and, and Dark Pool of Light and stuff, others like Bardo of Waking Life and, and, and 2013, there's still copies on online. Mm. You could, the, if you look under my name there. Oh, yeah. There, I'll tell you what. I searched your name. I found lots to work with. I ordered a couple books. books. Yeah, you got a lot of and, stuff out um, there. And, you know, my old my old colleagues at the press that Lindy and I founded put them all out of print and pulped them. But eventually inner traditions will bring them back into print. Right. No great rush on it. We're going to have to make a plan, but they're still available. So it's a moot point. Yeah. Yeah, no, you don't receive any of the, the funds from those, which is unfortunate. But is there a place where folks can go directly to get the books that you're offering? Because I'm really big on our audience supporting our guests. And, you know, sure, they can go and Abe's books and buy a bunch of books from them. But we'd prefer that they get, you know, some stuff from you as well. Yeah, well, no, I think that I've been the books that were left over in Windsor, Connecticut, people are free. If people go by Mendazi's warehouse, whatever books of mine are still left there, they can get for free or they can write to Ed and he'll send them for postage. Just, yeah. But 
The two inner traditions books, Dream Times and Thought Forms, which will be out very soon and bottoming out the universe are good. And then anything else, just order online. And if, if there's something you can't get, there are some books that I have enough copies of that if you email me, I can, I can send, send one. That's very the, kind of uh, you. Yeah. Awesome. But we can pick up those threads another time. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to have you back on, especially when Dreamtime and Thought Forms come out. I'm sure I butchered the, the title there again. Dream Times and Thought Forms. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, very, very cool. I was enjoying reading the author's copy that you sent me, and I'm looking forward to having it in my hands and yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to New England and all these places, there's one last thing I have to ask you, Richard, before we wrap up, before we go. The name of the show, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Does your family think you're crazy after all the, the years doing what you do? Uh, your kids, maybe. Do they think you're crazy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With Robin, our son, who's a scientist, I think of the lines when we showed eight millimeter movies of his childhood to his college friends a bunch of years ago, he said, there's me and my hippy dippy parents. <laughs> and later somebody said to him about my embryology book, which is dedicated to him. Did you read it? And he said, no, I lived it. So, <laughs> but we get along. It's just that, and Miranda and I have the most intense agreements and disagreements she, it's it's really challenging the way a kid can typify so much of what's familiar to you and then so much of i mean she's uh she's a radical consciousness but i remember robin also once saying when a big psychic event happened in his house he said this is weird even for rich and, uh, and the, so that's uh, and last summer he came when we were doing the psychic group in the backyard before we put it on zoom and i, I said well i know it's not your thing and he said it's more my thing than you think it is but i'm not going to go to a psychic group run by my father and, uh, understandable so, there's all, all of that and and lindy and i get along especially for being married so long but we she she doesn't share my perspective on this and she she is a little amazed she as she said at one point i'm not heathen but <laughs> compared to you you know the, and and i know people who are there are people in the psychic group who are way past the edge where I am. Um, well, so. we're not about judgment here. It's a judgment free zone. And I really, really welcome your insight and would love to have you back on, but this has been a true honor and, and folks listening, please enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Incredible. What an excellent conversation with Richard Grossinger, and I couldn't expect anything less given his many, many, many years, decades of researching and studying so many different alternative subjects. And it was a real privilege to hear Richard's story from the ups to the downs to the lows to the really bottom abyss abyssal lows and it was you know it's a rare treat to 
have a guest that's willing to be that vulnerable about such dark things and I don't say that to suggest that we're getting anything out of it other than a relatable wise story of someone's real actual life unfiltered the ups and the downs not only of his family's various ups and downs but his career as well facing uh political ostracization for really no reason i mean in all honesty richard is very dissimilar to most of our guests here um by all accounts he'd probably disagree with many of the takes that we've had on this podcast but i don't ever believe in excluding someone especially someone like richard who has so much wisdom to share with us even though we might not see eye to eye politically and i don't really think we even got into that much at all during this conversation but yeah it's a treat to have someone with such a diverse and unique perspective uh going through what he went through with these virtue signaling social justice warrior types you know it should it should be sort of interesting to hear your responses audience especially that juxtaposed up against his comments about trump you you wouldn't expect someone to be a victim of cancel culture but then also vehemently dislike trump so very complex a very complex character in richard grossinger and again i'll say it for a third time a absolute treat to have him here on the show please do go and check out his numerous titles i mean almost two dozen possibly more i think 30 altogether different anthologies and of course books a few of which we discussed here today and a new one on the way real soon several new ones actually so check out the links in the description to stay up to date with richard grossinger's work if that's your kind of thing and let me know what you think join on the telegram sign up for the telegram chat and uh voice your opinions share your thoughts criticisms all that kind of stuff and of course leave us a five-star rating and review support us on patreon we've got a whole month's worth of episodes that i plan on working on editing and releasing on the patreon within the next week so that way people who are on the patreon get a sort of early scoop at all of the month's episodes i have seven or eight interviews that i just recorded in the past two weeks so a lot of exciting exciting stuff on the way richard grossinger was uh very very nerve-wracking to have on the show because i didn't know what to expect and it went absolutely fantastic much better than i expected his books are different you know they're not typical what you might expect from my guest list right but that's what i want to do here with this show is go outside the lines outside of the box and interview people that other podcasts just aren't interviewing i mean this is one of five guests that i can think of off the top of my head 
that you won't find on many other podcasts because I go against the grain. Baby, my family thinks I'm crazy. And in honor of my family thinking I'm crazy, we got a new My Family Thinks I'm Crazy rap song that we're going to play at the end of this episode. And from here on out, this will be the new outro song for the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Big shout out to Holizna Radio on Patreon. Holizna puts out so much cool music and he was kind enough to make a exclusive custom rap song just for my podcast. So while you're at it, while you're sort supporting us on Patreon, go support Holizna if you're into free music. Anyways, that's about it for this episode, folks. Please do help me out. I still haven't fixed my car. I'm trying to save up money to do that. Got to pay rent. Got to pay bills. Got a lot of things going on. So any help I can get from you guys really helps. All of you guys and gals that listen to the show, even if it's just a dollar, two dollars, three dollars a month on Patreon, anything helps. Or even if it's just a one-time donation, you get a, a tip at work, and my podcast helped you get through the week. Well, hey. Split it with me, brother. I could use a tip every now and then. Um, But hey, don't let me ask too much. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your treasure that you share with the show, whether it's by supporting the show with a donation or monthly donation, or if it's by buying merch. We got a lot of really awesome merch that you can get from the merch store. I just put three new designs up. Shout out to Dr. I, shout out to the homie Romy. They just picked up the Time Is Now design that I made. It's very cool. I can't really explain it. You just got to look at it yourself with your own two eyes. So please do that. Check out the merch. And yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah. There's another thing. I want to have more folks contribute their talent to this podcast. So. From here on out, here's the challenge to you. And I want to say this at some in, in some intros to the episodes too, so people are reminded. But here's what you need to do. If you're an artist of any kind and you listen to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and you can draw or art, make any kind of art, specifically a type of art that you can, you know, take a scan of, a photo of, or, or even send me a digital copy of it somehow, any art that you make while listening to a given episode of my podcast, send it to me. Let me know which episode you were listening to when you made it. And if it's, you know, the only one I get, well, boom, it'll become the new album artwork for that episode. If I get a bunch of them, well, we'll see which one is the coolest and that one will win. And if nobody sends art, well, then sadly, the AI wins and I have to go to nightcreator.studio.com and type in a phrase and let the AI spit out some artwork because that just seems to be the most time efficient way to do it. But it would be cool if some folks were able to send me some art that they made while listening to the actual conversation. It would add a personal, unique touch to each episode, and it also would be kind of like putting your mark on the show. Uh, and don't worry, it's not just new episodes that this applies to. If you want to go back and compete with some of the previous episode artworks, I'll tell you what, prior to episode 
100. They all are pretty slapshod together. I didn't spend a lot of time on the episode artwork in the beginning because I didn't have time to. I was putting my money and time into all these other things to get the show going. And lately, the AI has helped me out (laughs) with the art generation. And it's a time saver, but I'd love to feature... Uh, actual art made by actual human beings who actually listen to the podcast. So if you listen to an episode and you're drawing, painting, or whatever it is that you do to create cool art while you're listening to the show, send me a picture, send me a copy, a scan, however you want to send it to me via email, mfticpodcast at gmail.com. That's M-F-T-I-C podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com and yeah if your art is the coolest if it looks the best compared to all the others that i get or if it's just the only one i get for that episode well guess what you will win a spot on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast rss feed your art will be memorialized with that episode uh forever really infinite however long the internet exists my rss feed will too so Thank you so much, folks, for being here. Thank you for tuning in. If you're an artist, please don't pass this challenge up. Beat out the AI, beat the machine, and have a great moment wherever you are. I'm a little extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. In like a hundred years, we went saw a from guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you can stick with your old ways. But eat the rich and drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. You can keep your blood so heritage and run the soul off the moon landed narrative. Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing. My folks think I'm nuts, but never question the parenting. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien that wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 911 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, riding ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to gold up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got Ken talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family did some crazy.
Some some of us that's some lazy. And if they die, I swear to tell kind of hazy. Come on, he's getting that feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pap thinks I'm on American and shady. I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an atheist and it wouldn't faze me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Anything out, so you know, maybe I.